Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast, your go-to source for personal, professional, and organizational growth and development. We hope you tune in often for all things people management, organizational development and change, organizational leadership, and social impact related. Maximize your personal and organizational potential with Human Capital Innovations Podcast. Welcome to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. In this HBR Minute HCI podcast episode, I explore the recent HBR video of cubicles, telecommunity, personal computers, and email change the way we work. Welcome back to the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. It's great to be with you again today for this HBR Minute HCI podcast episode. Today, I'll be exploring the recent HBR video, How Cubicles, Telecommuting, Personal Computers, and Email Change the Way We Work. Can a brief history of the modern office help us understand changes happening today? Offices and the ways we use them are continually evolving. We identified four key moments in the history of modern offices then asked HBR readers to share their memories of those disruptive transitions and tell us how the changes affected the ways they work. Thanks for joining me, and I'll catch you on the flip side of this first clip. Offices and the ways we use them are constantly evolving. There is nothing natural or fixed about the spaces where we work. In fact, Reporting to a building to do knowledge-based work is a relatively recent idea. When you look at the buildings in a city, you take for granted that work occurs in the office. Then you realize that work has occupied so many different spaces, so many different environments, that the office is just a short blink in the history of time. Architect and workplace design researcher Agustin Chavez says we need to remind ourselves that offices had to be invented. And over time, they have evolved to meet our own changing needs and expectations. Now that COVID-19 has upended office life worldwide, we thought understanding the ways the office has evolved could help us frame the changes happening today. With the help of historians, architects, and stories from HBR readers, We took a look at four key moments in the history of modern offices. So in the following clips, they're going to be laying out some of the disruptive technologies and shifts that have uh, impacted the way we work and where we work in recent generations. But before they do that, they lay out the general framework and principle that the modern office is really a new invention And within the grand scheme of things, it's really just a blip, particularly when we consider knowledge work. When we think about those who aren't doing physical labor, but doing knowledge-based work, that really they can do it from anywhere. The idea that they would gather in an office is a really modern kind of conception. And people did knowledge work for centuries and millennia without having a common office uh, where everyone got together. 
So what drove us towards that kind of common office space for knowledge work? They're going to be exploring several of those technologies and the, the disruptions that uh, translated into shifts and uh, changing paradigms in the way we view work. And all of this is relevant, of course, because we're thinking about virtual and work from home arrangements given the pandemic environment that we're currently in. Most companies ha had to uh, flip on a dime. They had to you know, snap their fingers and boom, everyone's working remotely as soon as uh, things really hit last March. We're almost a year to the lockdown situation with this pandemic. Now, I think people are questioning everything and challenging the existing assumptions about work because we've now almost had a year of virtual work and work from home arrangements. Can we continue to do that? What uh, limitations should they be put on that? What kinds of accommodations need to be made? How can we utilize existing technologies and what new technologies could enhance our ability to work more effectively and collaboratively even when we're not together in the same physical space? These are all the types of questions leaders have been asking uh, in recent months throughout the past year. And I think it's helpful to think back to the history of the modern workplace and how some of these different innovations have shifted us, if for no other reason to, than to help us remember that it hasn't always been this way. And if it hasn't always been this way, it doesn't always need to stay this way. In fact, we can disrupt the, those traditions and we can come up with better approaches that will maximize the potential of our people. And as leaders, we'll be able to accomplish more with our teams and for our organizations. In the 1960s, the Herman Miller Furniture Company introduced the Action Office. It was a flexible combination of desks, tables, and walls, offering workers flexibility and privacy. But the need for office space was growing quickly. Other furniture companies introduced copycat versions of the Action Office and companies eventually started using them to simply jam more people into less space. The modern cubicle was born. Now, when I when I started with a cubicle, it looked nice when I walked in, but but when I started working, it, it didn't help my productivity. Clemencia Villamil, who worked in HR in Venezuela, remembers transitioning from a big office to the isolation of cubicle land. It was difficult to make that link with people being in a cubicle and being separated from everybody. It made my job easier probably, so I could concentrate with my interviews when they were phone interviews, but it didn't help my, my social skills. Another unintended consequence of cubicles? You know, I'm five feet tall. So for somebody who's five feet, a cubicle is really, really a bad idea because most cubicles must be about five something. So I everybody could see over the cubicles and, 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 and socialize. And there I am having to go around every single cubicle to see somebody else. The action office or what eventually morphed into what we know today as the cubicle office arrangement. I think many of us have had that experience. I know I have. Uh, I'm not particularly fond of cubicles myself. Uh, I would much rather either be in a physical office space, in an open office floor plan, or just working remotely anywhere else. I'm not a huge fan of cubicles, but I've definitely worked in that environment earlier in my career and when going through grad school. Um, you know, one of the things that grad students often get assigned are graduate carols. What is, that's what they call them. They're essentially cubicles, um, mini offices. 
Uh, my, my graduate carol actually did have a door, but it was essentially a cubicle with a door. Um, and the bottom line is, while that can provide an opportunity to focus, uh, because now you're, you have some privacy and, and you can uh, tune out distractions, there are also some negative implications for collaboration and, and just the social needs and aspects of human beings and uh, how we engage with each other in the workplace. But it did drive efficiency, efficiencies around office space, efficiencies around how many employees we can fit within that space. And so it's no wonder that um, that, that cubicles became very common. And I think that the pendulum has swung back a little bit and there's been pushback uh, away from cubicles to more op open office floor plans uh, and space arrangements for more collaborative spaces uh, in, in the last decade or so. But even now, it seems like it's starting to swing back a little bit, and people are, are recognizing that the open floor plan often doesn't allow for the, the privacy that sometimes you need to be able to focus. Uh, I think this is a really interesting innovation, though, because it just illustrates how things shifted pretty dramatically, uh, pretty quickly, and you know, by the time my parents uh, were fully into their careers, and by the time I was starting off um, as a teenage worker and then moving into my career as an adult, uh, that's that, that was the norm. Like most people expected to have cubicles uh, or some similar type of work arrangement. Uh, but it, that isn't necessary. Uh, that's not the way it has to be. And we can explore what makes sense for our organization. The concept of telecommuting was first proposed during the oil crisis of the early 1970s as an alternative to gas-guzzling commutes. By the 1980s and 90s, technology had made teleworking viable for more jobs, and many companies began experimenting with remote work programs to reduce office expenses and offer employees greater flexibility. Uh, I've really never worked in an office uh, my entire adult life. Rex Goodman was a remote sales rep for United Airlines in the 1980s. He plotted out his sales visits with little blue dots on road maps and hunted for payphones, checking in with the office receptionist for messages. Because there was no voicemail or anything at that point. And then returned those calls to the clients that called you. But the first thing he had to do was find a payphone. Rex's life changed when cell phones came along. He got his first one in 1995, but it wasn't an immediate liberation. Uh, kind of amusingly, we really weren't allowed to use them that much. Minutes were so expensive. I kind of chuckle when I even hear the term telecommuting because that's such an antiquated term. Um, but the reality is that telecommuting has been happening for decades. And the fact that we've moved to more remote work during the pandemic uh, is is nothing new. Literally, people have been doing remote work and telecommuting for decades. Now, early on, that really was just over the telephone, hence the term telecommuting. And over time, more technologies have allowed us uh, to communicate easier uh, in more real time, including cell phones, including email, which they'll talk about in the next segment, uh, including video conferencing capabilities, squaring, etc., and so telecommuting has only improved over time as technology has improved. And we don't really even call it telecommuting anymore. But uh, the reality is uh, it, the same principle is there. And do you really need people uh, to, to be together in a physical space to accomplish some of the work that needs to be done? 
And it doesn't work for every job, but there are many jobs that are well-suited for more of a virtual work-from-home kind of an environment, and, and we can leverage technologies to make that happen. So the question today, I think, uh, given this pandemic environment, and given that so many workers have, have worked from home uh, for the majority of this year, is once we come out of the pandemic and it's safe to return to a physical workplace, uh, will companies want to maintain uh, the benefits of telecommuting or virtual work uh, where they don't have as much overhead costs in terms of office space and some of the other um, aspects, the increased productivity that's been reported through virtual work. Uh, how many of those employees are they going to want to bring back into a physical office space? Will it be a hybrid environment or will it continue to be a heavily virtual workforce? These are all of the questions that we need to be asking and thinking about and it goes all the way back to the origins of telecommuting uh, early on, back during the oil crisis in the late 70s. Uh, pretty interesting to think about. I'm excited to announce the publication of my new book from HCI Press, The Alchemy of Truly Remarkable Leadership. Ordinary, everyday actions that produce extraordinary results. Consider how the nature of work has shifted over the past 50 years. With increased globalization, rapid technological advancement, and the shift in economic composition, the average job of today looks very different than the average job of 50 years ago. What will the jobs and organizations of tomorrow look like? Moreover, what does this all mean for organizational leaders? What are the core competencies and capabilities of organizations and their leadership that are prepared for continued disruption and geopolitical and socioeconomic shifts? Regardless of what the future holds, increasingly, leaders need to be socially minded, data-driven, decisive, champions of talent, and disruptors of the traditional notions of leadership, teams, organizations, and work. The alchemy of truly remarkable leadership will help you to explore your own leadership competencies and capabilities and consider ways to apply and implement them into your workplace and personal life. In 1936, Alan Turing published a paper that proposed something called an automatic machine. If someone could encode a problem on paper tape, Turing's machine could solve it. And in the decades that followed, computers slowly made their way into offices. In the 1950s, companies could rent gigantic IBM data processing machines for about $15,000 a month. That's the equivalent of about $160,000 U.S. dollars today. By the 1980s, computers were much more common in offices, but you needed specialized skills to use them. But you used to have to go to a, a computer room, you used to have to sort of program using tape or cards. So you would take your cards, load them in the card reader, load your program, execute your program, uh, run it on a screen and keyboard in the computer room, take your printout back to your desk and then trawl through the errors and then three days later repeat it. Roy Ilsley, who worked in IT in the 80s, also noticed that personal computers changed the way people work together. When you go back before the personal computer was there, you didn't have a, um, 
a desk with a computer, you had to go and talk to people. But as soon as you've got the personal computer, your mobility slowed down. You stopped getting up, walking in, doing stuff. You became a lot more insular because you were focused on a task at something, sat there doing it. And when email came, it was even worse. The Turing machine, the precursor to the modern computer, uh, invented, I mean, man, that was a long time ago. That was 80 plus years ago um, that Turing came up with what eventually uh, morphed into the computer. And of course, over time, that has only grown exponentially in terms of computing power, memory, um, decreasing cost of storage, uh, et cetera. And so now I have on this cell phone, which I'm using to record this podcast, the capabilities to do way more than the largest IBM mainframe computer could have done back in the 50s or 60s. Way, way more. Uh, I can do everything, including uh, running my website and uh, producing a podcast episode, recording, doing all the editing. I can do everything just from my cell phone while sitting here on my couch. Uh, that's pretty incredible. And uh, all of that started with Turing. And of course, that changed everything. Once you started once you we had the the ability to use computers for computational um, tasks, and we had the opportunity to start automating tasks, not only did it disrupt um, many jobs and the type of work that we did, and it transformed the, um, how we worked together and the types of work we performed, um, but it's it's just continued to have exponential um, cause exponential change within organizations within work and within uh, jobs and careers. So I think we can't understate the importance of Turing's invention and all those who followed after him uh, in bringing us the modern uh, computer. And it definitely changed the nature of how we interact in an office space. So the example given in the clip about once people had personal computers at their desks uh, in the 80s and 90s, all of the sudden, reduce the amount of required interaction. And people tend to be focusing much more at their desks, at their computer, doing tasks um, assisted by the computer, as opposed to necessarily going around and getting information from other people because, hey, they have a computer, they can get the information there. Uh, so those types of, of group uh, dynamics and interpersonal workplace dynamics started to shift with the personal computer. Um, of course, there's been lots of benefits to the technology. Um, but I suppose this points out some of the potential limitations depending on how we utilize that technology. In 1965, researchers at MIT discovered how to share files and messages between computers. But it wasn't until the mid-90s that free electronic mail started to become widely available. Nobody got up to go and talk to somebody. You'd send them an email. You know, they were probably only three desks down from you, but you wouldn't go and speak to them. You'd send them an email. It's just a complete shock, this instantaneous way of communicating without having to go through somebody's secretary or book a meeting. Or... So it sort of felt a little bit scary, really. Today, we barely think about email. It just is. But as with so many other innovations that have revolutionized the way we work, electronic mail was once uncomfortably, excitingly new. I remember one day this, this guy walking in to the office that I was working in and asking me to move out of the way because he needed to 
get me onto electronic mail or email. And I, I, I didn't I didn't really know what this meant, but it, it basically meant that I would be able to send messages electronically to people all over the world. And so I said, oh, let's try the colleague in New Mexico. I, I came back in in the morning and I always remember this voice saying, you've got mail. And then I had one email. Hey, Lucy, good to hear from you. And I remember just like being completely blown away with excitement. I still remember my first email. I'm the tail end of Gen X, the very beginning of the millennial generation, what some people call the Zenial generation, born in uh, 1979. So by the time I was in high school, that's when the internet was starting uh, to come online, pardon the pun, and when email started to become a thing. I remember my very first email I got actually my senior year of high school in 1997. Um, now, email had been around a little bit by then, but really uh, hadn't been heavily utilized, especially outside of uh, corporate America. And so I remember in high school, and I took a computer class my senior year, and the very first thing we did the first day was set up email. Uh, and it was a little bit mind-blowing. It was just really awesome that we could send messages that way. And then soon to follow was instant messaging. And I remember... Uh, from that point on, throughout uh, high, finishing high school, college, uh, internships, early career, uh, utilizing email and instant messaging to communicate with people uh, really made a huge, huge difference in terms of efficiencies, but it definitely changed the dynamic in terms of how we interacted with each other and uh, how much we collaborated directly with each other. Now, I have to say that I still, to this day, I pr prefer sending an email to communicate with somebody as opposed to having a conversation. Sometimes a conversation uh, coupled with an email. But I like email because it's a record of what was said. You have, you have um, the words written that's saved that you can go back to and refer to. And so many times uh, I've had conversations with people where we've agreed on something, and then a week later, a month later, they say, no, 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 that's not what we talked about. And unless you have an email where you exchange it and, and they have it and you have it and you can pull it up and review it, you know, it's, it's so easy to have those types of miscommunications or fuzzy memories and ultimately it can drive um, dysfunction. And so that was solved in the past by physical memos, physical papers, and then you kept all the paper. Uh, nowadays, though, I think, you know, we can have conversations, absolutely. We can interact with each other. We can collaborate. But then you have to have a mechanism in place uh, to record that conversation um, or, or, or have notes around the conversation uh, to have a follow-up to the conversation where everyone can agree, yes, this is what we talked about, this is what we decided, this is what we agreed upon, and this are, these are the action items, these are what people need to be doing. Uh, unless you have those sorts, sorts of mechanisms, uh, things can break down pretty quickly. And so for that reason alone, I, I really uh, love email. I just feel like I'm able to um, to be very efficient, very productive uh, through email. I can uh, send key information rather than holding a big hour-long meeting with bringing everyone in to convey the same information. I can spend 10 minutes crafting an email, send it out to everybody. Then the question becomes, will everyone read it? Will everyone process it? 
So you often have to triangulate your communication strategy to make sure that you're getting everything across the way you want to. But the bottom line is it, it directly transformed how people interact in the workplace. Uh, and that, that new technology, I think, had a lot of benefits for efficiencies, productivity in the workplace. Can we go too far? Absolutely. Is it a, are emails, texts, instant messages, are those uh, a replacement for actual person-to-person discussions, conversations, and collaborations? No, but I think it's a very useful tool. These were really interesting changes in the workplace. Uh, as I was uh, watching this video and listening to and re-listening to the audio in preparation for this episode, I just couldn't help but think about, you know, these, these four that they laid out are really important and, and impactful. They change the way we work. They change the office place, uh, the workplace, uh, but there are so many others. We could go on and on and on. There are so many uh, fundamental shifts that have happened due to these changing uh, technologies and uh, the, the, the broader societal context around us that have influ- influenced the way we interact with each other. So I think it's, it's really just helpful to take a step back to think about uh, how these changes have happened over time because we're in a moment now during this pandemic where we have to challenge assumptions, we have to rethink what makes sense for us and our organization, for our culture, for our team in order to be effective and work well together. And just because we did something in the past doesn't mean we need to do that again in the future. And in fact, there are probably new uh, approaches, new technologies uh, coming that we haven't even conceived of yet that will even help us improve further and move the needle towards greater productivity, efficiency, innovation, collaboration, and, and more sustainable organizations. As always, thank you for joining me for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe. I hope you stay healthy and safe. Hope you can find meaning and purpose at work each and every day. And I hope you have a great week. We are excited about the launch of HCI's new magazine, Human Capital Leadership. Human Capital Leadership is a free interactive e-magazine designed to help individuals, leaders, and organizations find innovative approaches to maximize their human capital potential. We will be publishing issues quarterly in August, November, February, and May. Check out the first issue and let us know what you think. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of the Human Capital Innovations Podcast. I hope you stay healthy and safe and that you have a great week.